The Why Me Project, an exclusive presentation of Faith Strong Today. Okay, so we've said each and every week, if you know somebody who's incredible and we need to have conversations with these incredible people, make sure you let us know. Email, carrier pigeon, Instagram, whatever, and we get messages every once in a while. We do, and we have one that was from uh, someone, and we can't even find it now, but at least we found the contact information to reach out to today's guest. <laughs> right? I, I tried. I was on Ask Jeeves. I was sending nothing. Nothing. Couldn't figure it out. But without further ado, speaker, co-founder, caregiver, and so much more, Lisa Jamison, how are you? I'm good. I'm having a frazzled day, but that seems to be part for the course for a lot of people these days, and so we're all in together. We are, you and me both. Oh. <laughs> but we're here. We are here. Yeah. yeah. And I am, I have to say, you all can't see me, but I'm looking hot because I am going to be a mother of the bride in three weeks. And I had to go this morning to have my practice makeup done. Like, nice. And I'm not a big makeup wearer. So I'm looking at myself today in the mirror thinking, what and who and why? <laughs> I'm I'm sure we're going to dive into you and family and and everything else. But I think the first skill testing question we like to ask everyone is, who are you and where did you come from? That is a skill testing question. My name is Lisa Jamison. In a super spiritual sense, but very, very true sense, I am first and foremost a child of God. I'm just so grateful that that's who and what I am. Beyond that, though, I have to admit that my identity has been something I struggled with for my entire life. Um, and it's interesting because, uh, as I'll, I'll explain later, um, when I became a mother of uh, one of my children with special needs, disabilities, um, identity became a very prominent conversation point for much, much of the rest of my life for a lot of reasons. But, you know, ultimately, I, I'm a mom, I, I wear, I am a child of God, but I have a lot of roles as a child of God. And it starts with being a wife, and then a mom, a daughter, a friend, a caregiver there, it feels like a lot. I think when we start to think about all the roles we have and hats we wear, it feels like a lot. My life feels like quite an adventure. I think you asked, did you say where Where did you come from? Mm-hmm. That's always a really tricky question for me to answer. And because I like to be creative, I once wrote down this creative description of myself as someone who, whose life could be described as a matchup novel from National Geographic magazine, Little House on the Prairie and Epicurious magazine. Nice. <laughs> well, this is the most creative response, I think, that we've yeah. seen yet or heard yet. Yeah. Well, and I can tell you why. Yeah, please do. It makes my story more interesting because I feel like I need to make it interesting. And yet the reality is I really have had kind of a, an interesting life. Like when I listen to how a lot of people grew up, I'm like, okay, well, it's kind of an interesting growing up experience. Um, my parents were from Minnesota, but I was born in Buffalo, New York. And by the time I was nine years old, I'd already lived in four different states, several different houses. My dad's early career was launching and causing him to take several different transfers for different kinds of uh, promotions and so forth. But when he was nine, um, he made the decision to, to um, well, he left the company he'd been working for, his, basically his whole career at that point, and tried his wings at a very different industry, different job, 
and moved us all the way out to Jamestown, North Dakota, which was in the middle of nowhere. Mm. At that point, I'd been everywhere from uh, New York to Ohio to Minnesota. And now I was third grade in North Dakota on the James River. And we literally would put on ice skates and skate to school because the school was only a couple blocks down on the other side of the river. And you could get there pretty quickly on ice skates and somebody would shovel a path down the river. But if you couldn't skate there and you had to walk, it was like nine blocks because you had to go the long way around to take Mm -hmm. the street to get there. So it was quite a little kind of idyllic sort of setting. Until uh, early spring, when my dad decided, "Mm, this job isn't for me, things went awry. And he, uh, one thing led to another, he was going to go back to work for the original company he was with, but they had a little project they wanted him to do in Grimsby, Ontario, Canada. Oh, wow. Just down the road from me. I was just there in May for a school reunion. Nice. So, yeah. So at nine years old, all I knew about Canada was what we learn in social studies about something called the Calgary Stampede. So (laughs) (laughs) I was in shock thinking, okay, this is kind of scary and interesting. And I guess we're moving somewhere where they wear cowboy boots and hats. Mm -hmm. That's of where we might be moving. Um, And we thought that it was just going to be for the summer. My dad started working there in the spring. And the idea was, well, we'll rent a house on the lake. We're kind of lake people which you'd think really living in the middle of Jamestown. But that's why my parents picked a house on the river because they were Mm. water people. And so they thought, well, this will be great. You know, it's supposed to be a short-term project. We'll go live there for the summer before the fall and school starts. They'll transfer me back to the state somewhere where the kids can start school. So we'll rent a house. It'll be like a summer on the lake, you know? And we drove up with our boat, behind us and everything that we thought we'd need for the summer in the boat and all of our belongings in storage back in the States. And we drove up to the end of 30 road, dead end, right at the end of the lake, our house on one side of the street and the other side of our house was the newer home. The house on the other side of the street was 150 foot, 150 year old kind of mansion, like mini Uh mansion where like the old shipping magnates would have their parties and stuff, you know, and there was an old sunken pier that we would swim off of and stuff. And it turned out that the family that lived in that house had kids our age. My dad had already met them and gotten to know them. They weren't really sure if he was some straight American, like who was really being straight with them about having a family or not until we drove up and we all got out of the car. And from that first night there, they had fresh salmon on the fire out in the lawn and the garden picked vegetables to serve for dinner. And that was the beginning of uh, another layer of my Epicurious magazine experience because uh, between our parents who were all gourmet cooks and living kind of off the land, because literally we would go out during the day as kids, I'm nine years old, we would take ropes and blankets and go out into the peach orchard string a rope between two trees, hang the blanket like a tent and play out there. Like we were from little house in the prairie or something. Mm. And when we'd get hungry, we'd go back and just check. And if mom was around often, our one of our moms or both would have set a basket of cherries or something out on the step for the kids to grab for snacks. 
Nice. And it'd be three o'clock and they'd realize they haven't come in for lunch because you're just <laughs> eating fruit off the trees, fruit yeah. out of the baskets on the steps and that sort of thing. And that ended up being, um, instead of a summer, it ended up being for me, nine, almost 10 years. Wow. We just never left. We fell in love with the Niagara area and stayed there. And I graduated from high school there. Um, my parents ended up moving back to the States after I started college. And, uh, so that area is still like a second home to me. And, and partly because I have all these incredible nostalgic uh, memories that really have shaped a lot of who I am from how I like to entertain and cook and everything. I mean, we stomped grapes for Gus Butt and then we'd jump in the 50 degree water in the fall to clean off. And, it, and I, we'd still come out with blue hands and feet from <laughs> walking around in grapes for part of the afternoon. And then we'd be having that wine for Christmas with the the Christmas pudding and all the British influence on their cooking. And because Mr. Gus Butt was from Newfoundland, we had uh, oysters on the half shell every year for Christmas. And they Love became it. our Canadian family. They're like our Canadian cousins. And when we started school, we had to move in a little closer into town, my parents thought. And... Uh, you know, I just, it was a beautiful area. People who, who I talk to now, I live in Minnesota. They, and I have my Minnesota accent back, but I still am told all the time, especially by my children that are certain words I pronounce like a Canadian. I can spot Canadian accents like really fast. And That's I think annoying. they're my kindred. Was it difficult for you as a kid moving around so much or did you find it easy because you're just so used to it? Well, it certainly cultivated some personality traits in me that are uh, advantageous to me today and shaped me in some really positive ways. But yes, there were some really hard things about it too. And and actually, even on my own faith journey, I've had to work through healing from a lot of bullying I went through. I was teased incessantly for being a Yankee. And even to the point of... Um, it being physical at times, like fifth, sixth, seventh grade were horrible, really mm. horrible. And people were wicked. Now, I think I was pretty arrogant back then, too. So I don't think I was always very likable. So I had to learn some humility, I'm afraid. But I think that I had developed this. You know, I was the smart kid. I was the athletic kid. The kids resented me. I was also different. I talked funny. Um, but even by the time I got to eighth grade, the principal who taught the seventh and eighth graders history was super unkind to me. Like he'd, I, mm. he'd single me out when they were teaching about the French American war and things like that. He'd isolate me out as if it, I was responsible for it, you know, and kind of, it was really rough. It was, it was not fun. And um, it taught me to have a, a bit of a tougher skin, but I think I'm still a tender spirited person. I also, I think that I always, wanted to advocate for the underdog somehow. Mm. And I think that's one of the reasons I was drawn to my husband too, because I met him in college and he, he too was somebody who felt like kind of always different than everybody else. Um, but was always very, we were both very liked by all the adults, but not always the kids. Mm. And we both were people who wanted to make sure nobody was getting left out 
And um, we probably came from a place of feeling often like we were left out and we didn't want other people to feel like that. Yeah. Yeah, And so who knew, you know, years later that we would be parenting in this special needs community where everybody feels lonely and isolated and left out. And um, ultimately, you know, it's a real spiritual, emotional journey for these families and a real crisis of identity. Like, who am I now? Because this is consuming. So I know you reached out in part because of my connections with the disability community. Um, And I I have to say it like that's both something I've grown to love, have a passion for, uh, certainly have a lot of experience in. But honestly, even at in my mid 50s, I still part of me is in this like denial, like that that's other people like I'm not really in this life, am I? Because this is so consuming every single moment of my day and my night. My daughter, who's got Angelman syndrome, is um, 24. And she one of the many things she struggles with is a complex sleep disorder that's very medication resistant even with a cocktail of things at night, I've gone through 24 years of um, absurd sleep deprivation. Mm. (laughs) Like you just, it would boggle people's mind if they knew the kind of nights that we have to endure at our house. And it's only, you know, taken me to the ends of myself and myself. You see, I'm more than one person. There you go. That's what sleep deprivation will do. Let's talk about this journey into, you know, you get married to the love of your life. You guys can relate because you want to make sure that people feel accepted and not on the outside. And now you're going to start your own family. Uh, Was this daughter your first, your second? Our third. Your third. Three girls, no boys. So my oldest is getting married in three weeks and it will be our first time having a a son of any sort. Although I've tried to claim my nephew as my son lots of times. (laughs) He's pretty amazing. (laughs) Yeah, we're excited around here. We're trying desperately to be more rested so that we can enjoy, you know, the typical family, if there is such a thing, experience of a wedding. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Oh, amazing. Well, congratulations. Thank so you. rewinding 24 years, did you know that there was something that might be a little off in some of the appointments leading up to her birth or how did that go? We knew nothing of any problems whatsoever um, mm. until even the birth experience, the labor and delivery was unexpected, but really is irrelevant in terms of her disabilities. It has nothing to do with that. It just so happens that she was laying the wrong direction. She wasn't she was what they call transverse and so she wasn't breech she was sideways and so they had thought that I would need a cesarean but I actually ended up going into labor the night the middle of the night before we were supposed to head to the hospital in the morning so uh, and then she turned unexpectedly even though they never expect that to happen of course it did so everything was very chaotic and unexpected in the last hours there Um, and because of that I wasn't dealing so so calmly with my pain, shall we say, and they gave me something for my pain, which then made her cry. So she was born crying. And one nurse or another kept telling me, Oh, it takes a few hours, the baby gets some of that. And it seems to make give them this cry, and it'll go away. Well, it never went away. And so even though we didn't get 
a diagnosis for Carly until she was two and a half, there was never normalcy with her. And Mm. yet in those earliest days, it always seemed like there was some explanation for it and that it would just get better. You know, oh, the medication will wear off and she'll be fine. Well, then she was still crying two days later. Then she flared up this horrible, horrible diaper rash that you could tell by looking at it, it must be extremely painful. And it was super, super resilient. Like we could not get rid of it. And so then we assumed that all the crying and inability to sleep, all the inconsolability was something like that. And this kind of went on and on. And then we had friends or the the church nursery lady who all were, oh, she probably has colic. My daughter had colic. And you're thinking, I've had two kids. This is not colic. Mm -hmm. This is worse than that. And even trying to persuade the doctor. So it wasn't really until she was about six months old that it was becoming clear she was missing developmental milestones. And she had feeding issues. She had sleep issues. She had developmental issues. They eventually diagnosed her with something called sensory integration dysfunction. So we knew she wasn't processing what she felt and heard and saw properly. And so one after another, we were just getting these little hints that things weren't typical. Hmm. Um, and, and it was frustrating and we dug in hard to try to get all the support and resources for her that we could. But when she was two and a half, she, it's a much longer story. We tried to tell it in our book in the context of, you know, community and what happened when a community came around this little girl to try and help her. Um, but the gist of it is that at two and a half, she had a grand mal seizure landed us in the ER that ultimately led to an accurate diagnosis once and for all. They told us she had Angelman syndrome. It's uh, named after Dr. Harry Angelman, who who discovered it years ago, back in the 60s. They finally found in uh, just a few years before Carly was born uh, that there was actually a gene associated with this. It was not just a set of symptoms, but an actual missing or muted mutated gene so in 85 percent of the cases there's actually portion of like in carly's case a portion of her chromosome is missing uh, on the 15th maternal chromosome um in some cases there's imprinting errors and mutations and all these scientific things but majority of the cases it's a it's a pure and simple deletion of that and that's what she has and it ultimately impacts a number of things in her health. She has some complex medical issues and her development is um, delayed in just every area. Um, one beautiful thing among many about Angelman syndrome is that while it looks similar to cerebral palsy and autism because of some mm-hmm. of the behaviors and the um, muscular tone issues and stuff, it's very different than autism in that she's super social super affectionate. Um, This young child who was inconsolable is now uh, just has this delightful personality. Like once we could get her comfortable and uh, start working on some sensory therapy. So she had some coping skills and so forth. And we knew what we were dealing with better. Um, She actually has this just really fun, rascally personality 
Um, she's quite low functioning and yet she is an independent walker. The quality of her gait isn't normal and we, she's not particularly safe and she doesn't recognize anything about personal safety or any, any filters for what she should or shouldn't do and doesn't follow directions. So somebody's usually very close to guard her safety and her behaviors. And so people watching may not even realize she walks by herself because she's often being reminded where she needs to be. <laughs> but she's very mobile, very, very mobile. Um, but ultimately, it's a handful because she is uh, like you take a 24-year-old adult um, body with the mind uh, and the behaviors of a toddler, the social disposition of a preteen. She loves music. She loves to dance. She loves to be out and about watching everybody and what they're all doing. And she's very curious and she'll approach anybody and she'll often want to give a hug, but she might inadvertently get your long, beautiful hair caught between her fingers and give it a good yank. So mm -hmm. she, you're just, you're right there. Somebody's right there all the time to help with everything. As a parent, we love our kids. Nothing would ever change that. Holly and I, over the years, we've talked with a number of parents who've had children dealing with different uh, disabilities, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, with somebody who, like you, who has a faith, was there anger? What was your reaction to then finding out that, you know, I, I have three, three daughters, one of them is going to come with a bit more of a challenge? Yeah. You know, most people do get angry and ask, why God? And I'm not exactly sure why my husband and I didn't ask that question quite the way that most people do. I would say we actually weren't even angry in, in the ways that you might expect. But I think over the years, we, we, we dealt with a lot more anger as we've gotten more tired, um, as we get to the end of our role on a fairly regular basis, um, and I certainly have asked not so much why God, because I, I really have had, I was raised with a grounding in faith, but I was 14 before it was really a personal, intimate relationship with Jesus. I, I had a, an, a freshman year encounter with God that was really mind changing, mindset changing for me about what being a Christian really meant that shaped me the rest of life, but it, of my life. But that being said, um, like everybody's faith journey, it's a process of, you know, in layers and ebbs and flows. And um, we're all going through different stages of confidence and reassurance and doubt and uh, questions. And so I think that my husband and I experienced an anger stage that was most prominent in the last even three, four years since COVID, mm -hmm. because COVID alone launched us into a whole nother level of issues with Carly mm -hmm. that we were already kind of threadbare in terms of our, just our energy level and so forth. Um, we've both been pretty grounded emotionally and spiritually, but just physically live at a, a certain level of on autopilot a lot, you know, people who even know us well often think, well, you don't look as tired as you act or as you say you are. 
Yeah. Um, and I think it's because we get so good. First of all, you what choice do you have? You know, it's your child. You love them. You're doing what you can. And you're not going to walk around with sackcloth on all the time. Like, that's yeah. not what we want to be either. And yeah. to some degree, you're showering and looking good to go to church because you want to. Like, for once, I want to get <laughs> yeah. feeling like I'm a normal person, <laughs> you know? And yet there are honestly, there's times where I'm like, maybe I shouldn't because I look too good. Like I look like I'm got it together yeah. too much and nobody realizes how much help we need. How mm-hmm. we are. Anyway, I'm, I'm losing sight of your question, but I think it's just a matter of recognizing that life is a life of faith. Take us a lot of different places. And we're kind of learning that when we're in those harder or hardest moments, we can't panic. We just have to keep going back to what we know the truths are, you know, mm-hmm. about who we are, whose we are, that we love each other, that when the stress is starting to manifest in tension and relationships in our marriage or with our children or something, we have to go back to remembering the truth and remembering that our spouse is not our enemy and appreciate that Jesus didn't promise us happiness but that we will have joy, but happiness and joy aren't always exactly the same thing. Mm -hmm. That's for darn sure. I think a lot of people are in pursuit of like, I want to feel happy all the time, but it's just, it's not life. (laughs) I mean, I wish (laughs) it's hard to, to understand that difference. And that does come from good faith. And the same thing is true of purpose. Like we, we we're in pursuit of happiness and we're in pursuit of purpose and everybody wants to know, well, what's my purpose? And then we get all uptight and frustrated and feel unworthy or inadequate if we don't know what our purpose is. And I'll tell you, disability has a a very interesting, challenging way of stripping us of anything we thought our purpose might be and showing us the real deal. Because most of what I ever thought I would do or be in life was no longer possible when I became mm. the mother of someone with such complex needs and, and intense, like ongoing, unrelenting needs. While I have had the great fortune to um, sense God lead me into opportunities to do disability ministry, it's still not my ultimate purpose. I really believe that at the root of it all, we are all just born with the purpose to love and serve our God. And that we we are the ones that don't think that's enough. We start wanting to feel more important or do something to earn the favor of God or other people. We want to feel important. And we just can't get it through our thick skulls that God says we're important. And so we are just because he said so. He made us. Doesn't he get to say whether we're important or not? But I can tell you that I can say that and I believe that to my core. But at three o'clock in the morning, when I'm absolutely exhausted, at, um, on a emotional thread, um, I too can feel like, God, am I really important? Because I don't feel important enough to you right now for you to hear my prayer. And my daughter doesn't feel important enough for you, because why aren't you fixing this? Mm-hmm. You know, and the enemy can wreak a lot of havoc with a sleep-deprived mind or um, the mind of someone who doesn't know truth. We have got to saturate our minds with truth so that we are equipped (laughs) in those moments when the enemy is really working in the dark places of our mind. 
you said it might not necessarily be purpose, but you do have a ministry, uh, Walk Right mm-hmm. Ministries. When did you yes. and your husband decide that you wanted to do this type of ministry? And what is it? Well, Walk Right Ministries was founded in 2008 with the mission to build faith and community with special needs families. And I really think that word with is important because we're not doing it to them or for them. We're doing it with them. We really are a community here of families um, who don't always all know each other, but they know of each other. And they, they sense that they're part of a broader community when they're served by this ministry. And often many of them serve with us in one way or another. Um, And because we're just a, tiny little ministry based in Minnesota, but able to do work virtually with people all around the world. Um, we are part of a broader community of many disability ministries um, mm-hmm. <clears throat> all over the world. And we're all very collaborative. We each have our own little niche, but because we're kind of, we're kind of a new and growing industry, if you will, because lots of people don't have never heard those two words put together, disability ministry, and wonder, well, what is that? And what do you do? And who are those organizations? And even when families like mine find out, like we did when Carly was two, that they're now thrust into this new world or community, we wondered, who is our community? And particularly, we wondered, who is our faith-based community? who has a resonating experience like this. Um, Mm. At that time, when Carly was born in 1998, there still really were no no support groups even. And if they were, they were just very specific to like an autism support group or a Down Down syndrome parent group or mom's group or something. Um, There weren't groups for couples. There weren't groups for dads. There weren't a lot of groups at all. And those that existed were not faith-based. And so when people started asking us, where are you getting your support? You need to get involved with someone or you're going to have support. And while our first support specific to the disability was through the Angelman Foundations, the only place we were getting our faith-based support was from an amazing church that helped us in, in the early years in some really practical ways and really prayed for us and were very empathetic in general, trying to know how they could help. But it was still not the same as having conversation with parents who get it. And to be honest with you, when Larry and I first heard the words Angelman syndrome associated with our daughter, our first reaction was, um, and I'm not proud of this, but I thought, I don't want to be those people. I know mm-hmm. some people who have kids with disabilities, not many. And those that I know are really cool people. They're amazing. They're so kind and gentle and wise. And But I still don't want to be them. I don't want to be their, their community. I, I don't want to do this, you know. Um, and yet part of me thought, yeah, I can do this, but I just don't want to be part of them. Like, I want to do this and still be the normal mom and dad. Thankfully, God softened my heart and opened my eyes to opportunities because ultimately what Larry and I began to see, you know, just to back up a little, before this all happened, I had a very amazing career. I absolutely loved and was being very successful in um, as a corporate training designer. I was writing training programs and designing uh, corporate curriculum for Fortune 500 companies and traveling 
um, all over the U.S. and across Europe and everything doing this. And I really liked it. I liked working even when my kids were young and I had really wonderful quality daycare and we were able to manage it and we were making good money and all of that changed. All of it changed in an instant when Carly was born. And yet, even within the first couple of years of her life, we could see that God was using those things to equip us for writing curriculum, like Bible study curriculums. And um, we thought, long before we thought we were going to have a ministry, we thought that God was going to use us to write um, curriculums for small groups to bring mm-hmm. parents like us together in a faith-based focus to um, resonate and share and do it under the truth of the gospel and with hope, but also recognizing um, genuine lament and raw wrestling with doubt and questions. We just thought that was what we were supposed to do. And when a literary agent told us, well, you got to write the book first, the publisher won't want the Bible study. We started working (laughs) on more of the book and, and then when the book launched in the in November of 2008, we really only launched the ministry as a mechanism for following up with readers who would need discipleship support. Little did we know that over the years, that little niche that Walk Rate and Ministries would fill amongst all of these other peer groups that we serve alongside, our little niche would become caregiver support in the form of things like caregiver consulting, helping them connect with those other resources around the country that nobody knows exist. Um, sometimes counseling. <clears throat> I became ordained and do pastoral counseling now. I, I went on to study creation therapy and became a certified temperament, Christian temperament therapist because we understood that you need to understand how God wired you to be uniquely equipped to be a caregiver because it's something we don't understand. You know, we all have to be a caregiver when we have a a child, even a regular child. Mm -hmm. Um, And as we all understand, like not all moms really feel like they fit that role very well. But, you know, if God calls you to be a parent, he will equip you for that that call and he won't make you change. He'll just say, you're going to be the mom that does these things with their kids. And it's really Mm -hmm. great at this part of being a mom, which is different than how the neighbor lady is going to do it. But God says, this is good. And God says, you don't have to be all things to your child. Um, He will be. Um, And I learned from a friend, in fact, one of my counselors years ago said, if you're perfect for your kids, they won't need God. Oh. Don't you want to raise kids who need God? Huh? Mm. I thought, okay. Mic drop. <laughs> yeah. uh, oh, so wow. All that to say, now we we are building faith and community with special needs families, focusing on the caregivers, which is usually the parents. Most often, the mother is the one who reaches out to us. Um, not always, but mostly sometimes grandparents, and more and more often, the siblings who are growing up, who basically were born into the caregiving role. And, you know, my children, my other two daughters, Carly's sisters, will log more caregiving hours in their lifetime than I did, because I didn't start doing it until I had my first child. 
And so we're, we're calling them now the club sandwich generation. They're what used to be this term of sandwich generation, which is kind of like me where I'm starting to have, I've had to do some caregiving, care coordinating for my in-laws as they aged and passed on while also parenting my own children. Well, the club sandwich adds those fancy things in the middle where my daughters are going to be raising their children while helping and supporting me and their dad to some degree and their in-law parents, excuse me, while also having to play a supportive role of some kind with their Mm -hmm. sister Mm. right there in the middle. And what that looks like is different for every family and not all of those siblings even want a role or have a role. We're thankful that our daughters are very engaged in their sister's lives, even when they're out of state. Like one of my daughters lives in Northern California and the other lives here really nearby us. The one who's getting married lives nearby, but they, they have, uh, they're heroes. They're unsung heroes to me. How do you recharge? I mean, you've been talking about how you are helping other people and how you are chronically sleep deprived and you can't escape it. Because I can imagine it would be hard to find someone to take care of your daughter so that you could just be like, we're going for a date night. Yeah. What do you and your husband do to be able to fuel yourselves for the next day? Thanks for asking because it's important. I hope I can answer adequately because it's it's absolutely essential that we do. Um, We never do it enough. Uh, We never get enough. We learned a long time ago that we have to find an adequate rhythm of respite. It's never going to quite be enough, but we have to fight for and be intentional about some degree of adequacy. Um, it means that we've learned we have to ask for help. We won't always get answers or responses. We've heard a lot of crickets over the years, a lot of them, and it's painful and it's hard not to get bitter. Um, we fight some of that from time to time, just have to keep taking it back to the Lord. Um, we have to be super, super intentional. Most of our life is is this paradox of having to be scheduled right down to our our marital intimacy. Most of the time has to be scheduled. And yet everything we do has to be held loosely because it's interrupted daily. <laughs> moment to moment, there are interruptions. So it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a exceedingly high level of intentionality that we we have to live in, which in and of itself can be exhausting. Um, we have to be super strategic about um, cultivating a robust support system around us. It's one of our big uh, themes in caregiver consulting is, is first helping other families recognize that that's going to have to be a big focus of their life um, for for their benefit as caregivers, but for their whole family to have a robust support system. It feels like a selfish thing, but really then broadening our perspective to understand that God's vision is so big. His kingdom purposes are so big. And when we do things like try to seek out a robust support system, one of the ways to stay humble, but persevering about it is to, to recognize that if we do it well, it's, it's God purpose. It's part of how God will multiply his kingdom purposes because it's through the intersection of our lives with others 
and there's the uh, that we grow more like Christ, that we um, find the joy of the Holy Spirit. Um, it's where we um, gain encouragement and are reminded of truth and hope when our own hope is shaken. Um, one of my favorite passages in scripture comes from Second Corinthians chapter 1. First of all, the first few verses are talking about the comfort of the Holy Spirit. And we've really needed a lot of comfort from the Holy Spirit over the years. But there's an interesting phrase thrown in there. It's so that, you know, like, why would God do all this? Well, for one thing, it's so that he can give us the Holy power, the comfort of the Holy Spirit, because he, he's all about developing intimacy with us. That's his number one aim. He created us so that he could have intimacy with us. And so he wants to comfort us. Mm. Uh, comfort is one of the most powerful ways to create intimacy. But he also gives us the comfort of the Holy Spirit, those verses say, so that we can share it with others. Hmm. So it goes back to like what I said about platform. Like I have a platform of this credible story in my life that allows me to share credibly what the Holy Spirit can do for somebody and they can hear it from me the way they might not hear it from their own pastor in a sermon or another friend because they're thinking, yeah, but you don't get my life or my life is so much harder than yours. So what you're telling me, I want to believe it, but I, I just can't believe it. But when they hear it from me, it's different. You know, they hear it. The other thing that is so powerful about this need to build robust support systems is that's where that's where. The prayer happens. That's where we learn that we cannot go on if we if we can't utterly rely on the Lord. Um, I just have to read you this because we were just discussing this in a support group. We do a faith-based support group virtually every Tuesday afternoon with Walk Right and Ministries and a group of small group of uh, mostly moms, not always, meet and and we've we've talked about this little passage so many times but right after it's talking about the god who offers comfort to all so that they can share it it talks about how paul's changed paul had his plans changed so many times and he was in a he was went to asia at one point it says we think you ought to know dear brothers and sisters about the trouble we went through in the province of asia so i'm thinking about the trouble i went go through as a mom Paul says, we were crushed and overwhelmed beyond our ability to endure, and we thought we would never live through it. In fact, we expected to die. Honestly, I thought at times, I'm, I just, I'm not sure I can do this anymore. One more night. But as a result, Paul says, we stopped relying on ourselves and learned to rely only on God who raises the dead. And he did rescue us from mortal danger, and he'll rescue us again. We have placed our confidence in him, and he will continue to rescue us and you are helping us by praying for us then many people will give thanks because god has graciously answered so many prayers for our safety it's that community and it's the it's the utter reliance on the only one who can really handle all of this and that's the only way i get through that's that's where my resilience comes from that's where my hope comes from that's where my energy comes from. Now, I mean, I could go on and talk about soul care and self-care and the secular things about what those two terms mean. But ultimately, 
it is well with my soul because I know whose I am. I don't let disability define me. I don't let being a mother define me. Those are roles I have in life, but they're not my purpose and they're not who I am. Hmm. If they are, then everything starts getting rattled real fast. Yeah. We, we talk about in the hills and valleys of life. There, there are times where we're looking at God and we're saying, God, why me? Why, am, why are you using me in this way? Or why am I having to go through this? Can you think of a, a time in your life where you've stood back, whether the, the hills and the mountains or the valleys where you've asked God that question? Yes, I have asked. And I'm thankful that he gives me two quick answers. And the first one is, why not you, Lisa? Why not? And the other one is, because I've been do I've been preparing you for this for your whole life. God has done so many things in terms of how I was raised, how I experienced relationships, what kind of career I had. When I stop and think gratefully, like with a focus of gratitude and think, God, why did you do this? And I can come up with endless reasons why he did this mm. with my life. Because he was like, why not? There's so many cool things about how I raised you that that prepared you for just such an experience as this. And just the moment we think it's all culminating in like some meaningful way, something else will happen that'll seem to derail it. And, and still down the road, we'll be like, oh, that was purpose. Hmm. <laughs> that too was purpose. Mm-hmm. God doesn't do anything without a purpose. We don't have to, we don't have to try to fit into it. You know, when I was going through really rough stuff as a 15 year old, somewhere in my head, I thought that making poor choices, living a life of sin even was going to be justifiable someday because then it would give me some really powerful testimony. Hmm. And I would really be able to help other girls because I did it. Mm-hmm. And the only thing that made any sense about that at all was this reality that we do all want to talk to people who would get us. You mm-hmm. know, we all want to be understood and we all want to feel important. Jesus knew that. And he keeps trying to tell us, I'm the one who will tell you you're important. I'm the one, the only one who totally understands you. Um, the rest of those other people who will kind of get you, and kind of make you feel important, that's just gravy. But don't think keep going seeking it there as the source of your satisfaction and sense of meaning. Come to me and then just let me put the blessing of those other relationships on top of it. We yeah. put it in the reverse order all the time. And and when the world lets us down, we go running back to Jesus. Oh, please help me. And he's like, yeah, why don't you come to me first? And yeah. then I'll just give you all the rest of this too. <laughs> so true. Give you first the kingdom of God and all the rest will be added unto you. And I don't mean that in a like, like he'll answer all our prayers. He'll do every, all our heart's desires, but he knows exactly what we need. Like, and I have to remind myself of that truth. When I feel like I'm at my wit's end, I have to remember that the blessing of the wit's end is that I remember my God is big enough for this and I'm not. He is God. I am Mm. not. And all the truths of like, I am important to him. That's what matters. Regardless of what my circumstances tell me, I will always be the apple of his eye. And if he's not answering me, yet at least, 
in my prayers, in my begging, in my crying. He, there's purpose in it. And sometimes, as the scriptures tell us somewhere in Revelation, I never remember the reference, that it's, it, well, no, it's not even Revelation. It's like First uh, Peter 5, 8 or some, 5, 9 or something. It says, if God is slow to respond, it is so that others will take notice and also come in. He's always thinking bigger. It's not that he's saying, Lisa, you're not important, but just hold tight with me while we work out some bigger things. This is bigger than you, which is not to minimize. It's like we think when we have our second baby, how can I possibly have enough love to go for another child? Mm-hmm. And yet God multiplies love, right? Well, it's kind of the same principle here in my mind, where he's saying, don't worry if I'm being seeming to be slow about answering, or if I actually say seem like I'm not answering your prayer at all. I have enough love to value and care for you. And I, I'm hurting that you hurt. But trust me for a minute, this is going to be part of something so much bigger. When you do get to see that, you will understand and you and I are going to have the party of all parties over it. And you will be happier. You'll have more joy in heaven with the angels than you ever imagined you could have, because then you will see with clear eyes what I was trying to ask you to trust me in from the beginning. She's a speaker, an author, a caregiver, a bonafide Canadian. Yes. Uh, walkrightin.org. <laughs> we came to find out more about you. We got charged. Lisa, we appreciate you for taking <laughs> some time and uh, hanging out with us. Well, thank you so much for having me. You guys are super fun. I'm so glad to have met you and really just keep it on. Keep on doing it. It's awesome. As a parent and seeing other parents go through kids who are dealing with some form of disability, it's kind of on the outside looking in. It's like, I can only imagine how difficult that is. Yeah. And knowing that there's a ton of people going through it, but yet now there's a lot more support. That's positive. Yeah, it is. And I really appreciate just how real Lisa is Hmm. and sharing those highs and lows, even that happened throughout the day. And often we think that maybe if you feel frustrated or you feel like just energy levels, you're low, maybe you're not trusting God hard enough, right? But that's Mm. not the case. He's still with us when we feel low. And it's also that being a parent, especially a parent with a disability is not a nine to five job. Yeah. It's it's a 24 seven and they're constantly having to deal with whatever that is. Mm -hmm. And so we as friends, we as support also need to realize that too. Yes, absolutely. And even just to find out how we can better support them. Now, just because you're wearing makeup and you look pretty for church doesn't necessarily mean you got 17 hours of sleep. You could be on an hour and a half in a Red Bull. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Anyways, powered, uh, powered by God's love and some kind of caffeinated beverage. Amen. Um, thank you to everybody who has uh, reached out, continues to listen, continues to, su- to support. And I say that in a lot of different ways with regards to all of our socials, Holly. Yes, because we are now, yes, on Twitter, yes, on Instagram, yes, on Facebook, also on YouTube. Or we're making the what? it easier. The, the YouTube. Tell me trying more. To, trying to make it easier for you guys to really get a snapshot as to our incredible guests, why me mm. moments. Yeah, it's really good. So you can um, click the subscribe button, the little bell thingy, and we let's bump it up. I think we have like two followers. One's Ooh. you, one's me. We're what? up to four now. 
What? We've doubled. Let's double、Yay. again. Yes, and then of course, if you want to hear our full podcast wherever you get your podcast, make sure you subscribe so that you can get the next episode delivered right to your inbox. <laughs> 